we began discussing last week, where again, the, the, the unit we're doing right now are fertility technology. And uh, we were looking uh, yesterday, last week at in vitro fertilization that is often abbreviated IVF. So when I say IVF, uh, you know what I'm talking about. And the IVF could be, uh, basically the concept would be uh, that uh, the husband's sperm fertilizes his wife's egg in a petri dish, in a, in a dish, in a laboratory dish. And if it is fertilized, if the egg is fertilized, it can then be, then it's called an embryo. Blastocyst is the initial embryo, but then it's called an embryo. And when the embryo is implanted in the woman's womb, and it takes, the hope would be that in nine months you'd have a child, right? That's called IVF, and it's actually a very common way of having a child uh, today. Not, well, yeah, I mean, not, I mean, most pregnancies are not IVFs, but IVFs are uh, a relatively high percentage of pregnancies. So the question is, is there any halakhic problem with IVF? Now remember, when I'm talking about IVF, I'm talking about what we would call plain vanilla IVF, meaning we're not talking about donated sperm, and we're not talking about donated eggs, and we're not talking about surrogate mothers, although we'll, we'll talk about that later. I'm simply talking about husband, sperm, wife's egg. That's why it's called plain vanilla, and it's going to be carried by the wife. Like no other people are involved. So what is the shyla of IVF? So I had mentioned last week that one shyla is uh, how the husband gives his sperm, because by definition, it's not going to be through relations. And the problem, therefore, would be, would this be the iser of wasting zera, masturbation? Uh, would that be the iser? So I had mentioned that the hetcher for it is that even though the sperm is not coming out through marital relations, but since it is coming out for the purpose of pregnancy, so that's not called in vain, that is not called levatala, because it is badafka being done for the purpose of having a, a child. That would be the logic of the hedger, that the prohibition of what is called hotsaas zera levatala, the emission, the emission of zera, Levatala for naught, uh, the wasting of seed is only if it is being done for a non-procreative purpose. If it is being done for the purpose of procreation, it would not be included in that prohibition. Okay, so is there any other problem? So the last thing we talked about at the very end was, yeah, there potentially is a problem of what do you do with fertilized eggs that are not going to be implanted? Because generally speaking, in a normal pregnancy, I mean, a normal woman's cycle, she, she only uh, releases one egg per cycle. One egg, right? So either it gets fertilized or it doesn't get fertilized. By in vitro, they're not going to take out one egg and do, try to do it in vitro because the chances are too small that it's going to work. Rather, they're going to give the woman uh, hormonal drugs that stimulate uh, what is called superovulation. Superovulation is exactly what it sounds like, that many eggs may ripen and uh, be able to be harvested for an in vitro. In other words, they may harvest anywhere between five and 20 eggs. Because again, if you're gonna do an in vitro cycle with one egg at a time, in vitro cycles are expensive. So what are you gonna do? You're gonna do it 100 times? You know, uh, so, so they take out a lot of eggs in the hope that one of them will be fertilized. 
So the problem is, if only one gets fertilized, so it to hey, that's the one you, you, you put in. But what if, indeed, all 20 get fertilized? Like, what do you do with all of the 20 eggs? So a major both legal question and halachic question is, what do you do, not with the surplus eggs, if the eggs are not fertilized, that's not a problem, but with surplus embryos that are already fertilized. So in order to understand this a little bit, we have to talk about a totally different area of halacha, which we will then apply to this area, and that is, what is the halacha about abortion generally? Let's say a woman's pregnant. Forget about in vitro fertilization. Let's say a woman is pregnant. So the question is, what does Jewish law say, halacha, say about termination of a pregnancy? Okay, so I'm, not, so I'm then going to move to in vitro after that, but let's talk about regular abortion a little bit. Yeah. Where does it say all these? Oh, okay. So, uh, well, as, as I discuss it, I'll try to mention it, but basically remember that uh, all halacha really has to be based on the Gemara. The, the Talmud is the source of all halacha. Now, obviously, there are, there's a lot of modern things that are not mentioned in the Talmud, so the halachic process is we look at the Talmud for precedent and for analogy and for comparable types of cases. And then what we have is we have the rabbis of today, the gedolim, the poskim of today, try to take those principles and apply them to new situations. From different, different things they see in the Talmud. Yeah, but it has to all be based on the Talmud. It's all based on the Talmud. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, let, let's take a simple case like... What's the halacha about an automobile accident? You know, a car accident. Uh, let's say my, my car hits your car, right? Like, who has to pay? Like, what, 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 right? Now, there's nothing in the Talmud about cars, but the Talmud talks about oxen and, and, and cows and chickens, right? So what we do is we look at the oxen and the cows and the chickens, and we try to figure out how that applies to cars, right? That's called precedent and analogy. Right, that's the, that, in fact, that is standard reasoning in regular legal analysis. And we, do, we have to do the same thing in halacha. So really, the shayrish, the roots of all halacha decision-making, is based on the principles in the Talmud that we believe were the oral law that was originally handed down to Moshe and then eventually written down. But then you have generations of contemporary rabbis and poskim who have to apply those principles to modern situations. You see? And that's why there'll be disagreements sometimes. Some rabbis will look at the Talmud as indicating X, and other rabbis will look at the Talmud as indicating Y. That's why there's arguments. Um, in other words, the arguments are, well, first of all, there are arguments in the Talmud itself, but even if both rabbis are following the same Talmudic principles, they might differ how to apply those principles. Okay? Uh, and the literature that applies these principles is called She'elo Sechuvo. So you, you, you heard that term. That's called responsa literature. Uh, so let's say Rav Moshe Feinstein, Rav Shlomo, Zalman Orbach, Rav Yashav, all of them have books that are called She'elo Sechuvos in which you could find a lot of these things there. But it is important. Your, your question is a good question. It is important to understand that if I say Rabbi X says so-and-so, it's not just Rabbi X, you know, <coughs> got up in the morning and decided that something should be okay or not okay, <coughs> rather Rabbi X you know, looks at the Talmud and the commentaries on the Talmud and comes to a certain 
certain conclusions. So we're not always going to necessarily go through all of the uh, proofs. That would be, uh, you know, that would take extremely long time, and some of it is very complicated. So more or less, I, I give you the conclusions, but, but uh, you should always know that all of the conclusions are based on reasonings from the Talmud. Okay? For abortion, do you know where they... Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you exactly. Yeah, I'll tell you exactly where it comes from. Yeah. Good question for abortion. Yeah. I think last time you mentioned um, taking the eggs and freezing them. Yes. So yes. if they're not going to be used, does that not count as wasting? Oh, yeah, excellent, excellent question. The short answer is, yeah, the short answer is, that there is no issue of wasting eggs. There's only an issue of wasting sperm. I mean, the, the way the halacha is set up, the Torah prohibits the wasting of sperm. The Torah, there is no issue per se uh, for a woman to waste eggs. Now, I, I, why there's that difference, I'm not sure. But halachically, the egg and the sperm is a very, very different, different uh, thing in terms of halacha. So uh, for a person to... Uh, so it would be yeah. Well, well, the problem is if you take all of all of the eggs out, uh, so you that, that would be effectively sterilization, which is a separate prohibition. A woman should not sterilize, get sterilized, unless it's medically necessary. I mean, for example, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I assume you know this: a hysterectomy or removal of ovaries is an isher de orisa, unless unless there's cancer, God forbid, so then it becomes a matter of saving a life. Yeah, so the whole uterus is forbidden. The ov- in other words, either way. You know, there's removal of the uterus, removal of the ovaries. In other words, e- either one of them. Because that is uh, tubal ligation, tying tubes. Uh, that is prohibited. Unless there's unless, unless, unless it's a matter of uh, a sickness like cancer, God forbid, that's a matter of life and death. Same thing for a man. A man uh, can, cannot have a vasectomy. Unless there's cancer or whatever it would be. The reason is because... Not because of abortion. There's no abortion. There's no fetus. The problem is there's an issue of sterilization. The Hebrew word for that is sirus. Samach, yud, resh, vav, samach. Sirus. In fact, not only are you not allowed to castrate or sterilize uh, men or women, you cannot sterilize animals. Now this raises, if any of you are pet owners, if any of you are pet owners, this raises an enormously difficult problem because, let's say, dogs and cats, right? Veterinarians and humane societies tell you that one of the most important things you need to do when you have a female a dog or cat or, or a male as well, a male is to somehow neuter them, spay them, uh, prevent them because otherwise you're going to have a lot of unwanted dogs or cats. I mean, that's part of the problem in Yushalayim, uh, why we have... Uh, so many cats uh, because, you know, no, whatever it is, they, they, they weren't spayed. Now, the problem is, if the Torah prohibits castration or sterilization of even animals, then what am I allowed to do, right? So really, uh, it's best if, if to buy a, buy a pet that's already been spayed or neutered. That way, it's already been done, you know, you have nothing to do with it. Uh, but if you have one, so they have a heter, like chametz, you sell your dog, to a guy, and the non-Jew brings it to a non-Jewish vet. In fact, that's another problem. If you're a Jew, it's very hard to be a veterinarian for that reason, because 
you as a veterinarian are not allowed to, all right, but they're, they're different at Hiram. They say the veterinarian can do everything but the final cut. The final cut has to be done by the non-Jewish assistant and the like. So if anyone uh, has a Shiloh with an unspayed or unneutered cat or dog, uh, they should talk to a rabbi. You can talk to me about it. Uh, it's not so pushy. So going back to your question, uh, to remove all the eggs might be the equivalent of, of sterilization, okay? Which means, in other words, just to finish the thought, even when birth control is permitted, it cannot be done through vasectomy, tubal ligation, or, well, hysterectomy wouldn't be used as birth control, but, but theoretically you couldn't do a hysterectomy uh, for birth control because uh, those things are forbidden to Orisa and they are only permitted Now, a very interesting question. Again, this is not our topic for today, but I'll, I'll just mention this as an aside. What about prophylactic removal of, of, of ovaries? Let's assume that uh, there is no cancer right now, uh, but a woman wants uh, either a hysterectomy or just removal of the ovaries because she's afraid there may be cancer later based on family history. Now, if God forbid somebody actually has cancer, there is no question you can remove the uterus or the ovaries or everything. It's not just cancer. Though. Like, there are no. other medical reasons. Well, it, it, yeah, but it has, it has to be life-threatening. That's, that's the point. It, it can't just be, you know, uncomfortable or whatever. It has to be... Because it is an issue to Arisa, and these prohibitions, just like eat, no, not eating pork, right? You, don't, you can only eat pork uh, if it's a matter of life and death. So this has to be a matter of life and death. So the question is, is prophylactic removal, does that fall under the definition of to avoid a potential danger to life? It's a big, it's a big, big question. Many opinions say that if there is no sickness and there's no certainty that there will be a sickness or a condition, uh, you're not allowed to uh, sterilize at that point. Others say if the, if the probability is relatively high, you would be able to treat that as a life-threatening situation. Again, that's a very, very difficult uh, situation. And unfortunately, in general society, a lot of women have jumped the gun. A lot of the women have prematurely essentially rendered themselves uh, sterile because of a cancer fear or some other fear. And, uh, you know, I think uh, it's generally not going to be that, that advisable. It's general, because, you know, you want to preserve your options as long as you can, as long as it's relatively safe to do so. Okay. Uh, but I'm not talking about sterilization, and I'm not talking about birth control. I'm talking about abortion. A woman's pregnant? Abortion. So the primary source about abortion is a Gemara in Tractate Sanhedrin. That's Gemara. And the Gemara talks about a Pasuk in Parshat Noach. Remember Parshat Noach, after the flood? That's when Hashem actually gives Noach the seven commandments of Noach, right? These are the important commandments. This is called the Noachite Code, or the Mitzvot B'nai Noach. And what is important about them? They are Hashem's commandments to all of humanity, not just the Jewish people. The Jewish people have 613 commandments in the Torah. But non-Jewish people also have commandments from God. And those commandments are called the seven Noahide laws. Uh, now, it's interesting. The Rambam actually writes that Jews have a responsibility to teach. We don't convert people. 
A Jew does not try to convert a non-Jew. Right? We don't proselytize. But we do have a responsibility to try to teach non-Jews about the seven Noahide laws. Uh, many of you probably know that this was actually one of the Rebbe's mitzayim, one of the Rebbe's projects, uh, was uh, to spread the Noahide laws, they're called, you know, B'nai Noach, to the, to the whole world. Yeah. Noahide laws are just like don't murder. Right, so, so, let, so, let, so, let, so let me enumerate the Noahide laws, right, just, just to be sure. They kind of overlap with the Ten Commandments, but it's, not, it's a slightly different list. Number seven instead of ten. Okay, Noahide law number one is uh, to believe in God and not to worship uh, Avodah Zarah. I'll talk about how that applies to Christianity and the like. Uh, number two, do not blaspheme, meaning do not curse God. You know, it's kind of having the respect for God. Uh, number three, do not kill. Number four, do not steal. That's number four. Number five, uh, our sexual laws, like do not commit adultery or bestiality or homosexuality or incest. So that includes homosexuality, by the way. Uh, number six, am I, am I, am I right count here? Number six is do not eat a limb that was severed from an animal when it was still alive. So Goyim don't have to shaft an animal, but if they cut the limb off when the animal is still alive, that's called Aver Menachai. That is prohibited. One could generalize this as a cruelty to animals law. One could generalize it. Now, number seven is very, very fascinating. Number seven is just called Dinim. Dinim means laws. It's the seventh, the seventh Noahide law is called laws. So what is the seventh law? That's, that's actually the most complicated one. And there's a machlokas. Rambam and Ramban, Maimonides and Nachmanides, what is the seventh Noahide law? Maimonides says it is an obligation on non-Jewish societies to create a court system that will punish and enforce the other six laws. Okay, in other words, we have these six laws that I mentioned, and there's an obligation to create a court system. In fact, this is connected to yesterday's Parsha. If you remember, yesterday's Parsha was a real, real difficult story, the story of Dina, Dina's abduction and rape by Shechem of, of Ben Hamor. And you'll recall that Shimon and Levi tricked the city into getting a bris. Remember, they wanted to, they wanted Shechem to marry Dina, and they came to Yaakov and said, let's make a deal. And what did Shimon and Levi say? Oh, we cannot uh, marry, let our sister marry people who don't have a bris. So the whole, all the men in the city, right, this is in the Chumash, all the men in the city uh, circumcised themselves. And on the third day, they were very weak, and Shimon and Levi went and massacred the whole city. Now, the question becomes, what is going on? What, are they murderers? What gives them the right to do that? All right, Shechem is actually high of Misa because of the rape and the abduction. So Shechem himself might be deserved to die. But what did the rest of the city do? What sin did they commit that Shimon and Levi has the right to kill them? And even Yaakov, Yaakov didn't say you're murderers. 
Yaakov said, you've made us, you've endangered us in the eyes of other people who may attack us because, you know, Yaakov did not criticize the actual act. So you know what Maimonides says? The Rambam says that Shechem violated the sexual law of Noah, but the rest of the city violated the seventh Noahide law because they were supposed to have a court system to punish violations of Noah. Well, uh, Shechem raped. Shechem raped Dina. Shechem uh, uh, he abducted Dina. Well, uh, under the Noahide code, it would be included. It wouldn't be included. You're correct. Rape of an unmarried woman would not uh, be a, a capital crime under Jewish law. That's true. Under the mitzvahs. What is included in the sexual For Jews? No, for non-Jews. For... No, no, no. As I was saying, so, so this would include rape of a single woman. This would include incest. This would include adultery. Now, uh, consensual intercourse with an unrelated person is not prohibited. In fact, in fact, uh, Noahide law permits you to be promiscu- permits the guy to be promiscuous. So, uh, an extramarital affair with a single woman is not forbidden under the Noahide law. I thought there's no real marriage. Though. Oh well, actually, the Rambam, the Rambam says there is marriage, uh, but the marriage is. You don't need witnesses, you don't need a ceremony, it's simply the having intercourse to create marriage creates marriage. So it actually needs marriage. Once once there's a Noahide marriage, if a Ben Noah were to commit adultery, he would be guilty of the death penalty. In other words, there is, it's not called Kedushin, it's not a sacred right. relationship. Yeah. But you said that fifth uh, law was no adultery, so is that not the cheating? Well, by adultery, again, uh, adultery means uh, if a woman is married. If a woman is married and she's with another man, that's a violation. But if the husband cheats, uh, that's not adultery, unless he's with a married woman. Is there a divorce? Huh? Yeah, so the divorce is simply the husband sends her away. There's no ceremony. He just sends her away. When he says, you're, you're gone, you're out, that's the divorce under Noahide law. So... So you see what the Rambam is saying. The whole city of Shechem was guilty of violating the seventh Noahide law of creating a court system. Now, I have this a little difficult because, well, number one, the whole city? I mean, they killed children also. I mean, who is supposed to make the court system? I assume it would be, like, the adults. You know, I mean, are the three-year-olds expected, you know, so it's still a little difficult to conceptualize why would every single person in the city be high of Misa, but that's not what the Rambam understands it. So according to the Rambam, the seventh commandment of dinim, dinim, laws, does not have an independent content. It is simply create a court system that punishes and enforces the other laws. That's Rambam. Ramban, Nachmanides, gives it a much bigger interpretation. Dinim is Hashem saying that Noahide societies have the right to pass laws to make their society a fairer society. So they can pass tax laws, they can pass health regulations, like vaccination, uh, they can pass uh, environmental protection, 
And Hashem is saying, whatever laws they pass become obligatory on the B'nai Noach to listen to. So according to Ramban, theoretically, the seven Noachite laws can turn into 10 million Noachite laws because that last one is as if to say, Hashem is saying, there are six specific things I'm commanding you and I'm commanding you to listen to every other law that, they, that the well, Noachite... Huh? So that, that's a very interesting point. Uh, it seems very, very clear that the Chi of Misa is only on the specific commandments that Hashem gave. That if Noahide society makes their own laws, they're free to make their own punishments. Like prison, fine, right? They don't have to make it a chi of Misa if, uh, because they made the law. It's only the laws that Hashem gave directly. But the Rambam would say that even the seventh one is chayyav. Yes, yes. The Rambam say, yeah, because the Rambam says even for the seventh year of Misa because they failed to establish a court system. Okay, so let's go back to abortion. Where does abortion fit in? Yeah. Where does it say, where does, where does it talk about the... In the Ramah? Oh, in, in Hilchus Malachim. Uh, I know uh, Chabad uh, studies very much um, Perek Yud Aleph and Yud Beis of Hilchus Malachim because that's yeah. about Mashiach, right? So uh, Mashiach is a very big topic. But right before that, right before that Perek, the Rambam discusses the Sheva Mitzvah Bnei Noach, and you can see uh, everything in there. Uh, of course, the, where, where will you find the Ramban? That's not, I mean, the Ramban is not there. That's the, the Mishnah Torah is only the Rambam. But if you look in the commentaries, you'll you'll see that the Ramban's opinion is also good. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, all right. Yeah. I'm, I'm perfectly fine to talk about it. Okay. So I had mentioned. It is. Yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, no, yeah, just, I guess I'll just add a little detail. Um, as, as was just said, uh, homosexuality is not a separate Noahide prohibition, but rather, rather, uh, one of the Noahide laws prohibits certain sexual uh, experiences. Among them are um, incest, adultery, uh, and the like. Actually, I, I do want to qualify it. I had mentioned rape of a single woman. The truth of the matter is, it's interesting. I, I want to step back on that. Rape of a single woman is not a sexual prohibition. It's prohibited because it's considered kidnapping or theft, meaning, meaning technically, again, maybe it's splitting hairs, but, it, but it's interesting. If a non-Jew commits adultery with a married woman, whether the married woman is Jewish or not Jewish, adultery with a married woman, that is a sexual prohibition for which he's chayyub misa. But if a non-Jew has sexual relations with a single woman against her will, like Dina, that is not a sexual prohibition, but that is considered theft or kidnapping. And therefore, Shechem, if you ask me, why was Shechem deserving of death? What Noahide law did Shechem violate? I, I want to correct myself. It was not Giloi Arayos, which is sexual. It was actually Gezel. Theft, which includes both theft of money and theft of a person. And the fact that a rape might only be five minutes makes no difference. Uh, it's a kidnapping for five minutes. It's holding, something, holding somebody against their will in a violent way, and that would be gezel. So that's an interesting little nikuda to be aware of. So homosexuality is one of the sexual prohibitions that are forbidden under the Noahide Code. But again, uh, even under Jewish law for Jews, Technically, now technically, this is very technical, uh, homosexuality 
uh, or, or the prohibition of homosexuality is violated only if there is literally genital-like contact, meaning if two men hug each other, even if they do so romantically, uh, technically they have not transgressed homosexuality. The homosexuality prohibition is literally sexual intercourse in the way that, that two men could have it. Okay, so that would apply to the Noahides uh, as, as well. By the way, there's an amazing medrash. The medrash says the following. The medrash says that Hashem did not destroy the generation of the flood until they began writing a kesuva for homosexual marriages. Now, this is mamash, very, very prophetic. Note what it says. It doesn't say that they were committing the sin of homosexual relations. That's a great sin. But there's a difference between committing a sin and knowing that you're sinning and committing a sin and defining it as something holy. See, this is the difference between people who are homosexual and people who want gay marriages. It's a very big difference. Person homosexual, it's hard, you know, to eat your heart, it's very difficult. I mean, again, I, I don't, you know, I'm not critical of, I mean, people struggle. It's a very difficult thing. So the same way some people struggle with alcohol and struggle with drugs, homosexuality can be a very, very difficult struggle. And sometimes people sin, maybe a lot of the time. But at least they know that it's wrong. But when you start having a kasuba, that means you're making it into a ceremony. In fact, you can see on YouTube, I mean, <laughs> that you want to see it, you can see gay marriages with sheva brachos and chuppah and talus conducted by so-called rabbis. They make it a holy ceremony. That's a very different thing because at that point, you're not just sinning, you're defining the sin as if it's a mitzvah. And the Gemara says, that's what Hashem could not tolerate. Hashem destroyed the generation of the flood. There were many Averis, but one of the Averis was not that they practiced homosexuality, but they elevated it to something positive by writing a kasuba, by making it, in other words, a marriage. <laughs> and that's why uh, the idea of gay marriage, uh, particularly if you try to make it a religious thing, is much, much worse than stam the sin of homosexuality itself. Okay, that's the thing. Uh, and that's really very unfortunate because, uh, well, I, I, don't, I don't want to get into too much. I mean, uh, the fact that people do Averis, you know, it's not our business to go into people's bedrooms and then see what they're doing. If, if somebody wanted to be a member of my show and they happened to be gay, I, I would not turn them down. I would not turn them down as long as uh, they don't want a public statement, as long as they don't want their anniversary to be announced uh, for a kiddish. These are private Averis that people do. And it's between them and Hashem. It's not for me to make it. But when someone comes in and they want a legitimation, they want a kiddush, they want a speech, uh, they want to celebrate publicly, that's a different thing because that's converting a sin into a mitzvah that, that we cannot do. So, in fact, I, I, I want... Say again? Who? What you just said about and the... That's a medrash bracious rabbi. And also Gemara and Chulin, so there are two, two sources for that idea. And I think that's very, very, it's very profound because you've got to focus on the fact that it's not the sin that caused the destruction, it was the legitimation of the sin 
that caused the destruction. Did you want to say? Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's even for like the like Yes, even for non-Jews, that's correct. So homosexuality is one of those things that is against not only the Jewish law that applies to Jews, but the not the non-Jewish halacha that applies under the mitzvahs b'nei noach. So like legalizing gay marriage for non-secular, completely secular. Yeah. So if we those would. Marriages yeah. Aren't yeah. Well, they would be a problem because uh, what society would be doing is society would be putting a stamp of approval on a relationship that God says is a repugnant relationship. Now, I, I want to make it very, very clear. On, on a personal level, I, it's not just me, many people, I have tremendous rachamim for people who, who are struggling with same-sex attraction. I, you know, I don't look down at them and say, you know, they're evil people. Uh, they have a, a very, very serious struggle and, and, and they deserve compassion and they deserve respect and, and, you know, the point is not to denigrate anybody. Uh, and it's a really, really, you know, and how can I say, if I had that difficulty, if we, any of us had that difficulty, how do we know how we would come out? Pirkei Avos tells us, al tadines chavercha, do not judge a person until you're in their shoes. And, you know, and Swasema says, we'll never be in their shoes, so how can we judge them? So it's not a question of, of not having compassion for people's struggles, but you can't use compassion to distort what the Torah says. I mean, the Torah says this, and we have to figure out how to live in accordance with the Torah. So compassion cannot, you know, make you change all the, all, you know, all the rules. I mean... Uh, if, if I would be writing the Torah, I might write the Torah a certain way. But obviously, uh, someone much wiser than I wrote the Torah a different way. And, uh, you know, the Torah is from Hashem. It's not from me. And therefore, I can't always allow, none of us can allow our natural compassion for people to change everything. So, you know, it, it, is, a, it is a real, real problem. I mean, uh, you know, it is a problem, but it does apply to Noahides, Noahides as well. Okay? So where do you get abortion? So abortion is said to be a subcategory of murder. Meaning, under the Noahide Code, if a non-Jew aborts a fetus, it is treated as murder. Now, how do you know that? How does the Gemara know that? Because when the Noahide law of murder is stated, this is a very interesting diuk from the Pasuk, the Pasuk says, Shofech, this is in Parshas Noach. Shofech dam ha'adam bi'adam damo yishofech. He who spills the blood of a person, now the normal English translation says by a person, meaning you hired a hitman, your blood shall be spilled. Adam ba'adam, a person by a person. But literally, the ba means in a person. He who takes the life of a person inside of a person, his blood shall be spilled. So, who is a person inside of a person? Fetus. So, Chazal say that the reason why abortion is prohibited under the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach is it is included in the prohibition of murder of shvichot damim through the unusual words adam shofech tam ha adam bi adam 
This is the Gemara in Sanhedrin. Who is Adam be Adam? That is an Ubar. Ubar is the term not for the taxi that you call, but Ubar mm-hmm. is the term for a fetus. A fetus in Hebrew is called Ubar. Do you mind if you need a one more time? Yes. Dam ha'adam, those three words, shofech, dam ha'adam, be'adam, be'adam, adam, be'adam, a person, any person, damo, his blood, yishafech shall be spilled. In other words, he gets the death penalty. Yeah. At what point um, is the baby Right, right, right. So, so I'll, I'll, get, I'll get to that uh, in, in a short. The first thing I want to show is the difference between Noahide law of abortion and the Jewish law of abortion. Because you need to know a very interesting thing. Now, in spite of the fact that we just said that abortion on the part of a non-Jew is an act of murder for which he's chayav misa. Chayav misa meaning today we don't kill, but when there was a death penalty he could get the death penalty, was treated as murder. Uh, by the way, that raises a very fascinating question. You know, uh, the, uh, the people, let's say the Christian people who are very much against abortion, they go by the term pro-life, right? You know, the big debate in the United States, pro-life versus pro-choice, etc. Now, there are some extreme pro-lifers that have killed abortion doctors, right? <laughs> They killed abortion doctors. In other words, uh, the abortion doctor shows up at the hospital to do an abortion, and uh, there's some fanatical Christian guy that's waiting in ambush, and the fanatical Christian guy you know, kills the abortion doctor because he says, I'm protecting the lives of innocent fetuses. Now what happens is, these guys get arrested, and they do get convicted under the law of the United States since abortion is permitted under the laws of the United States. So obviously what's going to happen is that these guys are going to go to jail and they do go to jail. Okay, that's fine. The interesting question is, according to halacha, don't quote me, don't take me, uh, according to halacha, would um, either a Jew or a non-Jew, would, we, would, would, would they be allowed to kill an abortion doctor to prevent him from performing an abortion. Yeah. Now, now that's the question, really. Because if abortion under the Noahide Code is treated as murder, you can kill a person to prevent him from murdering, right? I mean, let's take a case of a terrorist. I, I heard this morning there was, there was a terrorist. Uh, did you hear about that? Yeah. yeah. Do you know if, I, I, I read, somebody told me that four people were shot and one person died, but all four were Arabs? What? Is that possibly true? No, they were Jews. That didn't make sense. The one who died was a terrorist or somebody? The one who died was a Jew and then the one died. Yeah, that's what I, I okay, so that's the one who died should have, uh, Neshama should be in Gan Eden and uh, everyone else should have a full Shalema. Uh, but it's very, very clear, right? Everyone knows if I see a terrorist about to shoot somebody, I could kill him because he's called a rodef, right? That's pushing. That's not, that's not uh, a shayla. So here's the question. If abortion equals murder, 
then the doctor that's about to perform the abortion is like anyone else that's about to commit a murder, so why can't I shoot him? He is a rodef. In other words, why shouldn't the law of rodef apply to abortion just like it applies to murder? Now, let me make it clear. The law of rodef itself, I hope you understand, only applies to prevent, meaning uh, I could kill the terrorist before he kills somebody. Once he kills somebody, I cannot kill him. He has to go to court. So same thing with abortion. I mean, nobody is saying I can kill the abortion doctor after he did the abortion. But, right, that's not the question. That's for sure not. But the question is, could I call him a rode before? It's a very good question. And it's quite possible, according to halacha, the non-Jewish guys who kill the abortion doctors might be acting within their halachic right. Going to say, don't quote me. I don't want. To, I don't want to get arrested or anything. Uh, but that's going to be the question of Rodi. Okay. So that is the non-Jewish law of abortion. The non-Jewish law of abortion says abortion is murder and it is a capital crime. The Jewish law of abortion, strangely enough, is more lenient. The Gemara in Sanhedrin is the same Gemara, the same page, in the seventh parak of Sanhedrin. The Gemara Sanhedrin actually says that although abortion is a sin, abortion is a sin, it is not a capital crime, meaning to say a Jew that performs an abortion is not, it's a sin, it's an Avera, it is not Chayav Misa, it is not deserving of death, it is not Chayav Misa. Um, and how do we know this? How, how do we know? Why shouldn't it be Chayiv Misa? What does that mean that, like, someone who's about to go do an abortion according to Jewish law is not considered a rodef, and they could be, and they should not be killed? Well, it would appear, it, it would appear uh, that, that that would follow, meaning uh, if it's not a capital crime, well, well, first of all, it means when you had a Sanhedrin and a Jew got an abortion, the Sanhedrin could not execute the mother or the doctor for doing the abortion. But according to the... Says they, could. they could, yes, 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 yes. That's the difference. Uh, that a Noahide court could execute a Noahide, a guy, for having an abortion. A, a Jewish court could not execute a Jew for having an abortion. It's, it's a sin, but it's not a capital crime. Yeah? We're not obligated that, That's correct. That, that's, that's the interesting point. Meaning, we have our laws from Harsinai. They have their laws from Noah, and we are not governed by the seven Noahide laws. It happens to be they overlap, but we have our law, which has its own punishment system. That's so not like the in same the as their. When Hashem tells Noah these laws, yep. it's not for, it's excluding the Jews. Well, uh, let me put it this way. Until, okay, that's a very excellent point. Until the Torah was given, it did include Jews, meaning the Avos, Avram, Mitzvah, and Yaakov. It had to keep the Noahide laws in addition to the Torah. That's correct. That is correct. But once the Torah was given to us at Har Sinai, that took us out of the category of the Noahide law, and now we are governed by a distinct revelation. And the Noahide law does not apply to us anymore. But until Matan Torah, well, actually, it's a machlokas too, but many, many say until Matan Torah, uh, the Avos and B'nai Yisrael and Mitzrayim were bound by the Noahide law. It is, it is Matan Torah that separated B'nai Yisrael from B'nai Noah. 
Okay? Um, yeah. Okay. But if yeah. a Jew, if a Jew did one of these sins, the non-Jewish court fulfillment for that? Uh, well, well, well whether, they, whether they would or not, I don't know, but, but the, the, the question is how logically would they have the right to? In other words, uh, yeah. So the Pashtus is they would not have the right to because the, the halachic power that is given to, non, to Noahide courts to enforce the Noahide law is a power only over the Noahides. Hashem does not give the Noahide courts power over the Jews. So if a Jew violates, I mean, let's give a very simple example. Stealing, just stealing, is one of the seven Noahide laws. Now, under halacha, if a Jew steals, his only chiyav is to pay back, and maybe pay back double, whatever it is. Under the Noahide law, stealing is a capital crime, and the uh, person who steals can be executed. But that doesn't mean that the Noahide court has the right to execute a Jew who steals. It's only non-Jews who steal that can, that can be executed, you see? Now, what the court will lemaisa do, that depends on whatever they do. Uh, but, but if the question is, what does halacha authorize them to do? Halacha authorizes only the, uh, them to punish the, 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 non-Noah, the uh, non-Jew, the Noahide, for those violations. Okay, does so make, if the yeah. person is not a dangerous society, would, it be for, would you not be allowed to help the government out and say that that is a very, very fascinating question. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to the Hassam Sofer, you would not be allowed to, to assist a non-Jewish government in putting a Jew in jail or whatever for a violation of the Noahide laws because a Jew is not subject to the Noahide laws. But there are other opinions that actually say that uh, not what I just said before, and that is when the Torah gave non-Jewish societies power to make laws or enforce the six laws, that includes a power over the Jews as well. So your question is exactly depending on that particular question. Okay? that's why some say that a Jew can turn over someone or investigate or be on a jury or whatever it would be, even if that involves punishing, punishing a Jew. Okay. Um, by the way, n- another little point I want to make about the Noahide laws. I've been assuming, I didn't specifically say it, but I've been assuming in every example that any violation of the Noahide laws is a capital crime. Death penalty? Uh, now that may be a little strange. That means stealing. Right? A Noahide steals an apple from a fruit stand. He could be put to death. Right? What, what does that mean? That's kind of uh, a little harsh. It sounds like the Taliban or whatever, whatever, whatever it would be. So I, I do want to share with you a, a chiddish of Rav Aaron Soloveitchik, a great, a great rabbi. He wants to say that when the Torah says, or when Chazal say, that every violation of the Noahide law is a capital crime for Goyim. That doesn't mean, this is very interesting, this is different than the way a lot of people explain it. That doesn't mean capital punishment is mandatory. It just means the Torah gives non-Jewish society the right 
to impose whatever punishment they want, including the maximum. Who says this? Revarin But it doesn't mean they have to go with the maximum. So like, and therefore, he says, a normal civilized society is not going to do capital punishment for theft. In other words, the Torah is simply saying you can do whatever punishment you want, including the death penalty. And we leave it to you. So we're okay with very unfair uh, well, no, no, <laughs> no, uh, because uh, the legitimacy, because dinim implies that it be equal, it be fair. Now, the Torah simply says that different societies might decide that capital punishment is necessary in certain situations, meaning it's not a legitimation of, of any type of dictatorship, but it's simply saying, Hashem is saying, unlike Jewish law, where the punishments are spelled out, Hashem is giving non-Jewish society a broader discretion. But when a society is discriminatory, oppressive, unfair, unjust, that is not nichlal in dinim, right? So, so there is a concept, so to speak, of what you might call civil disobedience. I mean, you didn't have to obey, if you were a Jew in hiding in Nazi Germany, you didn't have to obey some law that says every Jew has to come forward and identify himself. That, that you, you just wouldn't have to do. Okay. So that's a big chiddish, because a lot of people understand that the capital punishment of the Noahide Code is a mandatory capital punishment. That's how it's commonly taught in yeshiva and whatever. Uh, Ravon Salvechik says it is not a mandatory capital punishment. It is the ability to even impose capital punishment if necessary, uh, but... Uh, a normal society is not going to go that extreme. In other words, we're not going to say a five-year-old who steals an apple is going to get, uh, is going to get, his, uh, going to get killed. Okay. So that's... Uh, I wish there'd be more sources for it. There's not, there's not a lot of sources for his interpretation. And I would have liked to have seen some earlier commentaries addressing it, but it makes a lot of sense. It just, it's yeah. much easier to un- understand the Noahide Code if you work in that way. But going back to abortion. So abortion is classified as murder under the Noahide Code, but it's not classified as a capital offense under Jewish law. And what's, my, what's our proof? There are two proofs that abortion is forbidden, but it's not a capital crime. The first proof is a drasha the Gemara makes when it says, uh, uh, nefesh, if you smite a nefesh, if you kill a soul, you're chai of Misa, you get the death penalty. And Chazal say that an ubar is not a complete person. This is a drasha, Chazal say. Ubar is not a nefesh, therefore you're not chai of Misa. Where does it say? This is in Parshas Mishpatim. Maka nefesh adam mos yumas. Well, what does the neshama come into the body? So, according to this, the neshama comes into the body uh, either at birth or in the case of a boy at Brismila. So even if uh, he's born already, you may not have a godly neshama. Obviously, in Nefesh Bahamas, uh, uh, he has as soon as he's living, but the godly soul may be deferred until the Brismila, actually, according to that. In the case of a boy. In the case of a girl, it would have to be at upon birth, uh, because there's no, there's no Brismila. So she gets her godly soul maybe earlier, earlier than the boy. Uh, now, the second is a, is a stronger proof, and that is in Parshas Mishpatim, there is a discussion, you may recall, of two men fighting. They're boxing it out. Mm-hmm. 
and there's a pregnant woman who foolishly tries to stop the fight and you know, one of them punches her in the belly and as a result she miscarries. So the Torah says that there's a financial obligation. The person who killed the fetus must pay money to the husband of the woman. Now, there's a general rule in halacha. This is a little complicated, but this is a general rule in halacha that says, if you do something which is both a capital offense and a monetary offense, I'll give you an example, the capital punishment cancels out any lesser punishments. I'll give you a simple example. Let's say you take a gun and you shoot somebody and the bullet goes through his clothing and all the clothing is ruined and the person dies. Right? So you're high of Misa for murder, but do you have to pay the uh, cleaning bill? Or do you have to pay the repair bill? Do you have to pay, or does your estate have to pay damage to the clothing? Now this may be a trivial example, but the halacha says, since you already get the death penalty, the death penalty cancels out any other monetary liability. Uh, the way this is phrased is, come lay, this is Aramaic, come lay bidraba mine, which basically means it is enough for him to get the greater punishment and he does not get the lesser punishment. In fact, this can involve much more than just clothing. The Gemara says, if you set, again, if God forbid somebody sets fire to a building, arson, burns down the building, which might be a million dollars, a million dollars, but also kills some people in the building, he does not have to pay for the million dollars that he destroyed, because since he's high of Misa, see, so it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's not, it's not, this is maybe counterintuitive. If he burnt down an empty building, he got to pay a million dollars. But if he burnt a building and somebody was uh, killed in the building, he doesn't pay a thing because since he gets the death penalty, that potters, potters, it exempts him from financial liability. It's, in other words, it doesn't, it doesn't compensate the people who lost. Uh, that, that, that's correct. That's a good point. Because they have their loss, they have their financial loss, whether somebody died or somebody didn't die. So uh, why should they be deprived of their compensation? Yeah, that's a good point. So you're looking at everything as a punishment for the person and the greater rep. So therefore, here's the reasoning. If the Torah says that if Ruvain kills the fetus by punching the woman, he is financially liable for the loss of the pregnancy. It has to be that abortion is not a capital crime. Because if abortion would be a capital crime, we would have the principle that the death penalty cancels out the financial liability. So you're, we're working backwards. Since the death penalty would cancel the financial liability, if there is financial liability, there can't be a death penalty. So we have a curious dichotomy where the law of abortion for non-Jews is stricter than the law of abortion for Jews. 
Now that's unusual, right? Normally we look at uh, the law for Jews as being stricter. Uh, although Lamaisa, in punishments, it actually isn't. In Noahide law, you have the death penalty, right, for stealing and the like. But again, for non Jews, abortion is murder, and uh, your Chay uh, of Misa, not you as a Yud, the guy is Chay of Misa. Uh, for Jew, abortion is a sin, but it's not a capital crime, and there would be no death penalty. And uh, the, the, the Chumash says, for destruction of a fetus, there's essentially financial liability uh, to the husband for the termination of that termination of that life. Yeah. You, now you're asking a Jewish woman or a non-Jewish woman? Yeah, like a Jewish woman. Can a Jewish woman hire who? Someone to make her miscarry? Yeah. Because then yeah, well, you would just have to pay and then have to... Yeah, well, again, again, keep in mind the following. Just because the punishment is only financial doesn't mean it's not a sin. I mean, it is also. Abortion is normally prohibited. The fact that it's not going to be a death penalty case doesn't mean she's allowed to have it done. So it would still be forbidden. Now... The question is, at what age, or at what, what stage of the pregnancy do the laws of abortion come in? Is it like immediate, like, right, right? So here, there's a big, big machlokas. Again, it is a machlokas. There are some opinions that say that the laws against abortion do not kick in until the embryo is at least 40 days old. Now, that's very, very early, 40 days. Uh, and the basis of this, now what's the source of that? Where do you get the 40 days? Uh, because the Talmud has a term that says, uh, prior to 40 days, the embryo is mayim ba'alma. It is mere water. It doesn't have enough development to be treated as a human being. Who says this? The Gemara has such a mimem yom. Less than 40 days, Kimayim, the Alma, is treated merely as water. So now, now, now I, 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 it's very important that you keep in mind that the Talmud does not make that statement about abortion. The Talmud is talking about a different thing, and the question is whether we can apply it to abortion. What is the Talmud talking about? The Talmud is talking about a totally different area. Do you remember from Chumash Vayikra, that when a woman gives birth to a child, she has to bring a sacrifice after the birth of the child. Not only after the birth, even after a stillbirth or a miscarriage. What carbon is it? Huh? I didn't hear you. What, what car- carbon is it? It's a sin offering. <laughs> so it's interesting. If, uh, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll explain this. You, you, yeah, carbon chattis. You would have thought it would be a Thanksgiving offering. But obviously, for a miscarriage, you wouldn't have that. Actually, it's a sin offering, whether it's a live birth or a miscarriage. And Rashi says the reason why it's a sin offering is that the Torah says a woman going through the pains of labor, I don't want to scare you at all, uh, will sometimes swear she's never going to do this again. And therefore, that's a sin. So she has to bring a, a korban, a sin offering. Now, when does she bring the korban? So it's brought down 
that she brings it, if it's a live birth, if it's a live birth, she brings it the 41st day after the birth of a boy or the 81st day after the birth of a girl. And that's a korban that, that, is, that is brought. And she's not allowed to go into the Beis Hamikdash until that time. So for the 40 days or 80 days, she cannot go to the temple, she cannot eat sacrifices if her husband brings them uh, she, until she brings her own offering on day 41 for a boy or day 81 for a girl. Now that's talking about a live birth, a live birth. Obviously, if it's a miscarriage or a stillbirth, she brings the korban right away. She doesn't, uh, no, I'm sorry, uh, that's not correct. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, that's not correct. Even for, a st- I'm sorry, even for a stillbirth or a miscarriage, she still has to count the days. She does count the days, meaning, meaning uh, she has a miscarriage. So 81 days later, if it's a girl, she'll bring a korban. Now, how early can a miscarriage be to bring a korban? So Chazal say, a miscarriage before the fetus is 40 days old is called mayim, is called mere water. And there's no chiv of a korban. Now, if you think about that, a miscarriage that's less than 40 days old will, will normally not even be detectable as a miscarriage at all. It'll feel like a period. I mean, there's no... If you look at, a, at, at what an embryo looks like, less than 40 days old, like there's almost nothing there. There's no arms, no limbs. There's not yet a spinal cord uh, that's developed. So how does a woman even know that she's having a miscarriage earlier than 40 days? I have no idea how a woman would know this. I assume there's some way to know this. Uh, But nevertheless, Chazal say, a miscarriage that is pachot mimem yom uh, there is no korban of a yoledes, a, a woman who gave birth. So, the point I'm making is, that's not talking about abortion. That's talking about korban for stillbirths. But, Chazal's, uh, some, some achronim want to say that since the description of why she doesn't bring a korban is because it's mayim, it's not called a human being, some want to say that applies to abortion. So as a result, there are some poskim that say abortion is permitted if the fetus is less than, it's not actually not even called the fetus, but if the embryo is less than 40 days. Now, this is important because we have something called the morning after pill. Now, the morning after pill is not a contraceptive that, that prevents pregnancy, but rather what it can do is it either can well, it may prevent implantation, meaning uh, you have a fertilized, you may have a fertilized egg, and this morning after pill can prevent the uterine lining from allowing implantation, uh, or, or it might dislodge implantation at a very early stage. So technically it's abortion, not contraception. Right? Do you understand the difference? Contraception is before you have fertilization. Once you have fertilization, you're dealing with abortion. So would halacha permit what is called the morning after pill? Answer, according to the opinions that permit abortion, pachot mimem yom, less than 40 days, the morning after pill would be permitted. But according to the opinions that prohibit abortion, even pachot mimem yom, and they forbid abortion even from, fertil- from fertilization onwards, uh, 
or at least implantation onwards, which may be a little later, they would not allow it. So it is a machlokas, and you know, God forbid, uh, none of you should ever have any situation like this, uh, but you'd have to talk to a Rav Posek about allowing this and the like. So there is an issue of how early in the pregnancy, but still, that's very early, meaning we don't differentiate between first trimester, second trimester, not like secular law. In other words, after 40 days, abortion is going to be usher, meaning uh, the only discussion in halacha is a pre-40-day abortion, which is really, really, really early. Once you're after 40 days, I mean, I'll discuss other grounds, but once you're after 40 days, the fact that you're very early in the pregnancy, where you're within the first trimester, or the pregnancy is not recognizable yet from the outside, that's not a factor. Okay, so do not confuse this with secular law that basically says, at least in the United States, that in the first trimester, abortion is 100% permitted and it's only after the first trimester there can be some regulations for it. Halacha does not differentiate between first trimester and second trimester. Halacha, if it differentiates at all, is only pre-40 days and after 40 days and there are many opinions that don't even allow a pre-40 day abortion. That's category one. Category two, what about rape or incest abortions? Let's say, God forbid, uh, a woman was was raped by a Jew or a non-Jew, but she's a Jewish woman we're talking about, or or the Noah law can apply to a non-Jew as well, or, God forbid, there was uh, incest, a father uh, was with his daughter, brother, sister, usually that'll be a rape as well, but, but theoretically rape and incest can be two different categories, and the like. Does halacha make any leniencies for the trauma of rape or incest? So it's interesting. There is a shita of Rav Yaakov Emden. Now, Rav Yaakov Emden was, I don't know if you ever heard the name, he was quite a fascinating rabbi. He lived uh, in the 1700s. Uh, Rabbi Yaakov Emden. E-M-D-I-N, Emdin. Uh, and he was uh, one of the gedolim, he was one of the gedolim of the time, one of the great postkin, but he was uh, kind of controversial. Um, and he said the following, he said, let's say, and this won't work for all rape, but let's imagine that in the time of the Beis HaMikdash, a woman committed adultery, and in the time of the Beis HaMikdash, she was going to be executed, together with the adulterer. And let's imagine she's pregnant. What, what do we do when Bastin would execute, Bastin, Bastin, when Bastin would execute a woman for committing a sin, but she was pregnant, would they wait, would they wait until the baby would be born, let's wait nine months or eight months, or would they execute her even if that would also kill the baby? So the Mishnah actually says a rule that you, you may not agree with, but it is in the Mishnah that because it is considered to be causing a convicted person to suffer by delaying their punishment, we do execute women even if they're pregnant and the baby will therefore die. Meaning even though in theory we could have saved the life of the baby by just waiting, we execute right away. 
and that's even if she's in her ninth month, even if she's in her ninth month, we don't wait for delivery. We go ahead and execute. So Rabbi Yaakov Emden says the following, since when there was a temple, <coughs> the baby would die along with the mother if the mother committed adultery, <coughs> abortion would be permitted because essentially, you're, in other words, abortion would be permitted in any case where the mother would be high of Misa. Now, that actually means in rape or incest, you, uh, rape or uh, uh, involuntary incest, you wouldn't be allowed to abort because the mother is not high of Misa. But if she voluntarily committed adultery or incest, you would be allowed to abort because since in the time of the Mikdash she would be high of Misa. And when she was high of Misa, the fetus would die. So even today she could make the decision to kill the fetus. That sounds kind of selfish really because the basis of killing the fetus is that she's high of Misa. <laughs> she's not going to get the death penalty. She's killing the fetus based on what would have happened to her when there was a base of Mikdash. But that's Rav Yaakov Emden. But even with Rav Yaakov Emden, which is kind of a strange shita, that's not going to apply to rape and it's not going to apply to involuntary incest because she's not Chayyab Misa. So what you need to know is that halacha does not have a rape or incest exception. But the way we analyze it is the following. We do have an exception that abortion is permitted when the mother's life is in danger because of the pregnancy. That's the only thing that matters, ultimately. Is the mother's life in danger because of the pregnancy? Now, in some cases, the mother's life can be in danger not only because of a medical condition, like a weak heart, but it might be that the trauma of carrying a baby that is from her father or from a rapist might be so devastating that it might make her suicidal. Now that depends on the person. You see what I'm saying? Instead of saying, oh, abortion is okay when there's rape or incest. No, that's not the, ca that's not the case. Abortion is not okay just because there's rape or incest. But abortion is okay if the pregnancy and birth is life-threatening to the mother. That is a true statement. And it may be, in some situations, that the trauma of the experience may qualify as pikuach nefesh. And that would, that would have to be analyzed. Okay, so that's an important point. There's no automatic rape or incest exception, but there is a pikuach nefesh exception. Because we recognize that pikuach nefesh encompasses not only physical, medical dangers, which is the common case of pikuach nefesh, that the mother, the mother has a weak heart or whatever it is carrying the baby could cause her to die, right? That's the common pikuach nefesh. But psychological trauma can also be life-threatening. People might commit suicide, whatever it would be, and therefore uh, rape or incest uh, might be a heter. But again, you have to explore the alternatives. You don't just... Uh, Say, oh, pikuach nefesh. We talk about counseling, we talk about therapists, we talk about giving up the child for adoption in which, you know, you don't have to, you know, raise the child if that's too traumatic for you. No, you have to look at all of the alternatives. Uh, they, there's a story they tell, I don't know if it's true, it might be a legend, 
they tell the story uh, that there was a religious girl in New York, a high school student, who was raped by a black man. I'm mentioning the color for, for, for the following reason. And uh, she was pregnant. And she was, uh, the doctor said she was carrying twins, twins from this rapist. And you could imagine, or maybe you can't imagine, I mean, this would be devastating. The whole experience would be devastating for any young lady and for a religious uh, woman, even more so. I mean, she was raised to be a religious Sanua woman. And she was so distraught that she literally wanted to jump off a building. She wanted to kill herself. She could not live with this violation. Um, so her parents arranged that she would talk to Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. And Rabbi Feinstein said, you know, this is so tragic, this is so sad. But then he told her something. It's a little, a little shocking. He says, but you know that you are carrying Jewish children. You know that these children have a neshama that's a Jewish neshama. Why did Hashem use this horrific means to bring a Jewish neshama into the world? He says, I don't know. They are Jewish neshamas. And you can still have the zechus and the mitzvah of bringing these Jewish neshamas into the world. Now, yes, if she was really suicidal, abortion would be permitted. But Moshe said, you can look at it in a different way. You can look at it as a tremendous tragedy has befallen you. But this is the way you can bring Jewish souls into the world. Yeah, this is kind of a shocking, a shocking thing. But it is said he spoke to her like for six hours and she began to see that there was something she could do here that, that could still be good. And the story goes, she raised these twins as a single mother. I don't know if she ever got married. She raised them as a single mother and they became, they both got smicha, they became rabbis and became teachers and then had families of their own. You know, again, I, <laughs> and I, 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 this is a tough, a tough sell maybe, and it's a tough thing to, to, to communicate, uh, and it only can come when there's tremendous love and, and consideration. Uh, again, I want to emphasize, if it truly was a life-threatening situation, abortion would be a mitzvah. But you have to see if it has to be treated as a life-threatening situation or is there another way of looking at things? And Ramosha convinced her that there was another way of looking at things. Now, I can't say I know 100% that this is a true story. I, I, I don't know. But this is a story that I heard many, many years ago. Okay, so at the time, I think she was 16 at the time. So she became pregnant with twins at the age of 16. I know, a religious girl, a religious girl, this awful, awful ni nightmare, nightmare situation. Yeah. What if it happened to a married woman? So, well, here, here, okay, so, so it really depends. Uh, if the rapist would be non-Jewish, which is in all probability would be the case, so uh, nothing happens. The, the kids are not mamzerim. They are not mamzerim. Uh, they are simply, uh, they have a non-Jewish father who's the rapist, and you'd have the same issue. The kids would be Jewish, and you'd have the same issue. And hopefully, 
her husband would, would understand and raise the children as his own. That would be the, the hope. Uh, again, if the husband can't live with it, that's another family problem, but, but ideally the husband should accept it. Uh, now, interestingly enough, uh, if the rapist would be Jewish, which is Hashem, very, very rare, but if the rapist would be Jewish, the kids would be mamzerim. They would still be Jewish, but they would have the stigma of mamzerim. They wouldn't be able to marry other Jews. Now, the only thing, when it, the only time that you'd have a real tr- uh, problem, though, is if the woman is married to a Kohen and she's raped by a non-Jew, she may not be allowed to stay married to her husband. That would be that would be a tough, tough situation because a woman that had intercourse with a non-Jew, even even rape, even rape, is not allowed to marry a Kohen. Yeah, or stay married to a Kohen. Yeah, but they're they're mamzerim only if it's a Jew only if it's a Jewish rape. Yeah. yeah. Oh, could they be aborted? Oh, I see, I see, I see. Yeah, so what are you saying with the story of the Gemara? With what? In the story of the Gemara, it, didn't, it doesn't matter if the woman's yes. pregnant. Yes. Yeah, the short answer is that there's no heter to abort a mamzer just because he's a mamzer, meaning a mamzer has the same entitlement to life as a regular Jewish child. So even if the kid is a mamzer, he cannot be aborted for that reason. Okay, that's not enough of a reason. Now, once again, if it's pikuach nefesh to the mother, that would be the situation. So I discussed 40 days as a time frame. We discussed rape, incest, pikuach nefesh of the mother. Let's talk about a, 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 a final scenario for abortion, and that is serious genetic defects. Okay, uh, right, we know there are genetic diseases, and the genetic diseases could be things like Down syndrome. Uh, they could be things like Tay-Sachs disease, which are, these are very, very different. I mean, I'm just giving them, I'm throwing them into a, a pot here. Uh, and the question is, uh, if through genetic testing it is discovered that there are serious genetic abnormalities that are not fixable, they just are, is there a heter uh, to abort because of genetic abnormality? So here, Rav Moshe Feinstein said, there is no heter. Just because a baby will be born with serious birth defects, and just because a baby has a short life expectancy, even if it's only a week, does not give a heter to abort, the child is still a human being, the child still has a godly soul, and the only discussion will be pre-40 or post-40, but, but once it's 40 days, we don't have a heter for genetic birth defects. And because of this, Rav Moshe was against amniocentesis genetic testing. Amniocentesis is when, uh, in the early stages of pregnancy or even late, they can draw some fluid, amniotic fluid, and from the fluid they can analyze the presence of genetic defects. Or even sonograms can uncover a, a, a certain amount, a certain types of genetic defects. But Moshe was against it for the following reason. He said, what are you going to do with the information? You know, in the secular world, 
the information about genetic defects influences an abortion decision. Should we keep the pregnancy? Should we terminate the pregnancy? But in halacha, if even if, God forbid, you discover something wrong, you're not allowed to terminate the pregnancy, unless maybe before 40 days, but after 40 days, yeah. So if Moshe says, maybe it's better not to know. Because here's the idea. This is another Kabbalistic idea a little bit. Hashem can give you brachos if it's not yet known that there's something negative. The Gemara says, for example, that until you measure your grain, I say, I don't know, I don't know how much grain is in my barn. Is it 100 bushels or is it 200 bushels? So until I measure it, maybe Hashem will make my 100 bushels 200 bushels. He'll do a miracle. Because I don't know it's a miracle. But once I know I have 100, Hashem is not going to make it 200. Because normally Hashem does not do open miracles like that. That's why in Israel, you should never check your bank account. I don't check my bank account. Maybe Hashem will put in some extra, extra money. Once I know what's in there, nothing, <laughs> no extra second of ground, right? So, this is called ignorance is bliss, and it actually has, it actually has a role in halacha. So, if it's a problem, like a heart valve, that if you find it out, you could fix it, then you're obligated to find out. Because if I close my eyes to what I might be able to fix, that's a chiv of ishtablas. That which is fixable, you need to find out about. But Ramosha's argument was, that which is not fixable, meaning if you find out there's a problem, you're not going to be able to fix it medically, and you can't make an abortion decision on it. Moshe says, maybe it's better not to find out because then Hashem might do a miracle with tefillah and things will be okay. And therefore, Moshe was against a lot of the uh, genetic testing of fetuses, the amniocentesis, because you cannot make an abortion decision. And the purpose of these testings is that families should be able to decide do they want to continue with the pregnancy. That's why they were invented. They can't fix Down syndrome. They can't fix Tay-Sachs. Right? But people make a decision. Do I continue? Now, this is Rav Moshe, and this is the majority of Pesach. I believe the Rebbe has said uh, the same thing. However, I do want to bring in, and I brought him before. He has some leaning opinions. Uh, I've mentioned already Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg, the Tzitz Eliezer. Uh, remember, I mentioned to him about the heter, to hug and kiss adopted children. If you adopt the boys before nine and the girls before seven. So he sometimes has these leniencies. So he has a heter... Not for every genetic condition. The specific genetic condition he's talking about is Tay-Sachs. Now, I don't know if uh, you know uh, the nature of Tay-Sachs. Uh, Tay-Sachs is uh, a genetic disease that exists predominantly among Jews of Ashkenazic descent. So very few non-Jews get it unless they have Jewish ancestry and uh, Sephardim don't get it. It's, for some reason, it's concentrated in the Ashkenazi Jewish population. And the way it works is both parents, if both parents carry the gene for Tay-Sachs transmission, then there's a one in four chance that their child will have the disease. If only one parent is a carrier, it's actually safe, meaning a carrier who marries a non-carrier, no kid is going to be sick, although 
You could have a kid that's a carrier, but, but no child will be sick. So a carrier can marry a non-carrier with absolute safety. What is it? But if two carriers marry each, uh, marry each other, there's a one in four chance. What is it? Oh, uh, uh, so, so it's a disease that hits children very shortly after birth, and uh, progressively they lose uh, all sorts of functions. They lose their eyesight, they lose their hearing, uh, they lose their muscle, they get paralyzed. Uh, there's a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, heart problems, liver problems, digestive problems. And right now, it is, there's no cure for it at all. And uh, the mortality rate is 100%, uh, I think, before the age of 8 or 9. Meaning, the, right now, think, I mean, medicine could advance. But right now, the child will have a tremendous suffering and will also die young. So it's a combination of suffering dying young, progressive loss of function. You could test it out before. You can test it out. We'll talk about that. You could test it out. Uh, well, well, that's why there's an organization, Doria Sharim, in which you get tested before you're engaged. If you're both carriers, you will be advised to break the shidduch. And that's absolutely correct. But I'm talking about... Try to do it before we go out. Yeah, do it before you go out. Even better. That's correct. That's correct. Do it early. And that's absolutely halakhically okay. But I'm talking about a case, I'm talking about a case where they didn't do that. And unfortunately, two carriers didn't know they were carriers, let's say. Let's say, you know, whatever, they didn't bother testing. And now uh, she's pregnant, and uh, genetic testing reveals it's a Tay-Sachs baby. So what do you do? So Moshe Feinstein would say, unfortunately, you can do nothing. You have to carry the baby to term. And you should have done the screening, and that would have helped. But once she's pregnant, and it's after 40 days, you cannot abort. That's Rav Moshe Feinstein. But Rav Waldenberg took a, uh, took a position that abortion of Tay-Sachs is permitted until the last trimester, meaning to say you could abort a Tay-Sachs baby as late as six months because of the extreme excruciating suffering of the baby. Now, this is a dat yachid, meaning to say... Uh, he's the only one that says this and generally we do not follow this rule and Rav Moshe was so upset at this psaq that Rav Moshe said Hashem will have to forgive Rav Waldenberg for allowing the destruction of children in this way now I want to make an obvious point but you have to be sure that you get it even Rav Waldenberg only matured because of the nature of Tay-Sachs for example, would Rav Waldenberg permit the abortion of a Down syndrome child? Of course not. Of course not. Down, you know, yeah, it's apples and oranges to simply say, oh, Rav Waldenberg says whenever there's a genetic abnormality, you can abort before the last trimester. That is sheker. That is a lie. He is talking about a disease that has great, great suffering that's incurable and that has a short life expectancy. Down syndrome is a disability, to be sure. But the, the, uh, people can live for 50, at least 50 years with Down syndrome. They can be productive. They can be higher functioning or lower functioning. They can have jobs. They can have friends. There's no hecher to abort a child because they have Down syndrome or cleft palate or other types of conditions. So be sure you understand, Rav Waldenberg, even Rav Waldenberg is not giving a green light uh, to abort for any genetic abnormality. He's talking about Tay-Sachs, which is a very, very specific 
100% mortality rate by age seven, eight, or nine, and great, great suffering in the meantime. So that's a special, a unique case. And even that case, Ramosha Feinstein would not allow. But Rav Oldenburg allowed it until the third trimester. Yeah. Yeah, so the halacha is very clear. Uh, abortion is permitted. Uh, absolutely. If the mother's even life... Even if it's fully formed. Even if it's fully formed. Until the baby's head comes out of the birth canal, we can abort. Now, the, only, the interesting question is, what if the mother decides? Can the mother make a contrary decision? Can the mother say, I would rather die so my child could be born? That's an interesting machlokas. But if, but if the mother does not make that decision, the halakha is absolutely the case that abortion is permitted. That is the classical case of pikuach nefesh of the mother. And the mother's life has precedence over the life of the child. Okay? Um, okay? So we talked about uh, all these different exceptions. Again, I'm going to swing back. How does this apply to in vitro fertilization? Right? But, but in order to fully understand that, we need to understand the Jewish halacha of abortion generally, okay? Okay, so see you next week, and uh, oh, one second, next Sunday is Hanukkah, right? Oh, yes. Next Sunday night, yes. Oh, so how, how does that work? What's, what's, do, we have, do we have class? Yes, you don't have class.